Welcome to the Recapery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Hello, and welcome to the Recapery. Today, we'll continue with our coverage of Netflix's series, The Crown, covering the life of Elizabeth II. This is Season 2, Episode 4, entitled Barrel. The Netflix synopsis says this. When Elizabeth and Philip throw a grand party for their 10th anniversary, both Margaret and the new prime minister experience romantic tribulations. The thing is, I think they evened out that a little too much because honestly, it is almost entirely a Princess Margaret episode. And so my synopsis simply reads, Princess Margaret journeys from the depths of despair to actually seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, that's interesting because mine was a little bit different because I was looking at it globally, you know, as the whole show. This was mine. Marriage. It changes everything. Told in three tales of love, lust, loss, and lassitude. And you love the alliteration. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it so much. I like was on the thesaurus trying to find lassitude. <laughs> I know. I do. Okay. Oh, do you want to do the frontal flintal thing? Sure. So we begin with a frontal, not a flintal. A listener pointed out correctly that, in fact, on the West Wing Weekly, a frontal, obviously, is the thing that you hear in the front of the show. And a flintal is what you hear at the end of the thing. So, in fact, we've been referring to it incorrectly. So the frontal that you see, it is a black screen and it is a bishop. Speaking, the classic wedding speech, we are gathered together in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join this man and this woman in holy matrimony. It is a beautiful wedding chapel. The first shot that you get is through the arch of flowers, looking down the aisle towards the altar. It's gorgeous. I mean, the flower budget, again, I, you know, I gasp at that. So I wrote flowers, dollar sign, dollar sign, because I tried to write flowers, pound sign, pound sign, and it looked like the Laverne and Shirley L. So I crossed it out. <laughs> I guess I don't know how to make a pound sign. I am out of practice. But um, so we do get a brief view of a kneeling bride and groom. We don't know who it is. We've got the flower arch, a stained glass window. We know it's a wedding, obviously. Then we cut to a view of Margaret and a mystery man arrives on a motorcycle. So we intercut a little bit um, between the motorcyclist arriving and views of the wedding. Um, we don't see the motorcyclist's face, actually, not yet. But there's a song in the background. The lyrics that we hear are, Princess, if you love me, I'm a prince. I saw you and I've loved you ever since. I found you with the crowd around you. I broke the ties that bound you, stood my ground, and now I've crowned you. So just so you know, <laughs> it is a very specific point out of, hey, look what's going to happen in this episode. <laughs> It was. And I, I actually somewhere in here, I have that the music for this one was fantastic. If I ever had to have like um, the soundtrack for one episode, it would have been this one because they did such a good job. But do you know who did that song? I couldn't find it. All the sites you see say it's created by Johnny Steele. Um, but then they always say remastered, remastered. So I don't know if it's the music to a different song. Anyway, I've got a link to the remastered version, the entire version that you hear here. But if you just look up Johnny Steele Princess, it is not the same song. Mm -mm. No, I was trying to find it by the lyrics and everything. I couldn't. So I'm glad that you did. So Margaret is at the wedding and the queen mom. Okay, so this is some kind of fancy wedding, but everybody looks bored. One guy is even asleep. And I thought it was super funny that the bishop's words <laughs> that marriage is not to satisfy men's lusts and carnal appetites is exactly 
when the motorcyclist is uh, shown, given <laughs> what happens later in the story here. <laughs> yeah, and when he arrives at the wedding, it's saying, entered into advisedly and soberly and in the fear of God. And that's when he gets there and gets off his motorcycle and shakes himself out of his jacket. <laughs> so somebody is being really good, both with lyrics and with like clever juxtapositions in this oh. episode. And I think I have an idea as to who it is, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Margaret herself looks like she is about ready to cry or go postal, like she's barely holding it together. And here's something you should know. This is literally an old boyfriend of hers getting married. His name is Colin Tennant, third Baron Glen Connor. Um, his wife, Lady Anne Coke, who's an earl's daughter, they were both her really, really good friends. In fact, he was so close to Princess Margaret as her friend and constant companion that he had to issue a disclaimer that no, in fact, were not engaged after the Peter Townsend affair. He was her first real boyfriend in her whole life. And so she's at his wedding. And, you know, she doesn't necessarily want him, but it is kind of a blow because she is feeling more and more on the shelf. And you've seen every romantic comedy on earth. You know, you go to an old boyfriend's wedding and you're full of regret, kind of. <laughs> this one actually reminded me of Four Weddings and a Funeral, that particular scene. Yeah. I almost imagined the uh, minister going, you know, uh, the father ghost and holy spigot. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but the attitudes are the same. You know, you're at that point in your 20s when you're all you're doing is going to weddings of your friends. And when you don't have one on your horizon, you know, you're happy for your friends, of course. But inside, you're like, oh, my gosh, why not me? Why not me? So the motorcyclist who has arrived at the wedding, is so late. He's late. The bride and groom are coming out. He's taking his moto jacket off and jumping the fence as the bride and groom are coming out of the church. And he starts taking pictures. And I think guests are regarding him as um, scenery. The way, you know, okay, so you see a guy with a leaf blower. You recognize he exists. You understand he's doing a job. You kind of stay out of his way. The end. You know, like <laughs> the queen mom even smiles fondly at him. So he's given a lot of... I don't know what I'm going to call it, social freedom. Like he's acting seriously weird, but that's the <laughs> photographer, darling. Oh, you know, he's just getting some snaps, except for this is obviously not the photographer because he's taking some completely bizarre photos. Someone's hand in a pocket, a little kid's shoes, the top of someone's hat, a boutonniere with the fond smile of the top hatted man who's actually wearing the boutonniere at the time. He's right up on him. I'm going to say that he got there just on time. I know you're saying he's late. But I think his job is to take candids of after the ceremony, uh. because there is a formal photographer there that does the posed portraits. His job is to get the ambiance photos. So when they put their album together, they can feel like they were there again and just see the little details. And he's doing that. Yeah, he's doing exactly what he was hired to do. And he got there exactly on time. Not only um, is the music really good in this episode, but the costumes. At this wedding, just about every single wedding guest is dressed in either a soft beige or a soft pink. I, all of them, all the men, of course, have black jackets on. So they look like they're coordinated, like there was um, a dress code <laughs> printed on the invitation. I just don't know. The Queen Mom's hat is re-donk, by the way. It is a <laughs> pile of pink flowers sitting on her head. And then I had another objection, speaking of costumes, if we're going to talk about it. Margaret's pink satin coat needs steaming so badly, and it bothered me the whole time. Now, unless she slept in it or her maid has fallen down the stairs 
or some other plot point, it shouldn't be that wrinkled. <laughs> How about this? On the drive there, because she, she's at a, not a good place in her life. So maybe it had fallen down behind her and she didn't bother to straighten it because she's just like, F it. <laughs> That's kind of where she is in her life. So having a wrinkled jacket, I think, works into that. Okay. Maybe. Well, I guess I, I'm, so. I'm just defending the costuming. And even that ridiculous, the queen mom always has ridiculous clothing on. It was great. Okay. Well, so we're in agreement, I guess, that it fits the characters. But um, those are the two things that I noticed. But so the photographer, we don't know who he is, and Margaret are locking eyes. And she is hostile. And he is just bland. Like, he has no expression on his face at all. He's just photographing her he doesn't even look through the viewfinder on the camera he's just like holds it up he's a pro he knows where that lens is pointed and she gives him that look and he knows to grab it because that's part of the emotion of the wedding <laughs> but he just clicks and moves on and it also yeah. looks like he re-establishes himself somewhere else and gets another picture of her the way his angle is but i don't i don't see it and they don't speak to each other mm -mm. um we do find out that he is a very different photographer than cecil beaton Cecil Beaton is doing the formal wedding shots inside the church. So from one camera lens, I like this transition. It's a little mm -hmm. uh, Leica is what it is. The little one mm -hmm. that the first photographer is using. We switch to another lens, this time on this big wooden box camera on a tripod. And oh, it's a voice. It's a voice we've heard before. It's, and I've been calling him Cecil Beaton, but it's actually Cecil. And I suppose we should respect how he pronounces his own name. So I guess I'll move forward with that, even though American <laughs> pronunciation does not allow us to do that without writing it phonetically. So I did. So everywhere in here, I wrote it S-E-S-S-U-L. I literally did. Okay, I'll try to fix it. Yes, that's a good point. So um, so you hear him saying, oh, very, very fresh, full of vitality. Thank you. So there's your official wedding photographer. He's taking the bridegroom parents' photographs, the boring photographs. The ones that sit on the mantle, the ones that get enlarged. The candid photographer outside is using a 35 millimeter camera, which is a smaller format film. And inside, he's using this huge format camera. It's almost like the cameras of today, quality-wise. It's very detailed, and there's a lot more depth to the photographs. So that's why Cecil Ha is using that particular camera inside. But, you know, we think of him as this staid guy, you know, just stuck in the past. He was actually a fashion photographer. He was a portrait photographer for Picasso and Catherine Hepburn and Marlena Dietrich. You know, he was brought into the family as a photographer after King Edward's abdication to create a different image for the family. So he's like the modern photographer that they brought in. And now we only see him as this old fashioned guy. That's how fast times are moving. Well, you know, we just talked about Coco Chanel on the History Chicks podcast and the same thing happened. Coco Chanel was the avant-garde. But then suddenly everyone saw her as the conservative choice, a Coco Chanel mm -hmm. suit when she started out as this radical. And so the same thing's happening with Cecil Beaton pretty much during the same time period, as a matter of fact. So society is really <laughs> swinging back and forth. Oh, wait till the late 60s, people. Wait till the late 60s. Yep. We come into the reception. We see the bride and the groom at the table with the cake and everybody's giving them the wedding toast. And the camera moves over and we see Margaret and the guy that was asleep at the church. And it turns out he's her old friend, Billy Wallace, and they're going to get bitter together about weddings and marriages and Margaret's lack of either. The, <laughs> the guests are toasting the bride and groom and Margaret does it in a very dead voice. Billy Wallace is drinking straight 
out of a bottle he's got in his pocket. I'm assuming whiskey. Uh, You know, it seems like at work functions, sometimes you stand by your sarcastic friend. Well, there they are. And her dress is worse than her coat. It is really, <laughs> really, really unacceptably wrinkled still. Wow. I am just shocked that you have this problem with wrinkles. I counted on Margaret to be my favorite outfit girl. And here she presents the very first is like a very disappointing situation. Yeah. Billy Wallace starts out the conversation like, well, I guess basically we're we're saying goodbye to these people. They're going to disappear too. You know, that's what married people do. They pull up the drawbridge or his exact words. And in my mind came a voice with a British accent that says marriage is so disruptive to one's social circle. So I wrote and crossed out four weddings and a funeral, cross out. <laughs> Downton Abbey, which sounds like something the Countess would say, cross out. No, it's Mr. Woodhouse in Emma. Shut up. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. So anyway, it's Jane Austen who believes marriage is so disruptive to one's social circle. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's not surprising, is it? So Margaret says, what am I supposed to do? No one wants to take me on, apparently. So she is full self-pity mode at being left on the shelf, I guess. And so Billy has a radical plan. Yeah, he kind of spells out marriage to her as kind of like a business relationship that they have shared interests and values and maybe they should give it a go. And she's looking at him like, this has never occurred to me before. It's like every one of those movies. Like, okay, if we're not married by 30 and we haven't found someone else, well, I really like you and you're my friend. So let's just get married because isn't that the basis of a good marriage? Um, So that's what you think it's going to be. He does make his case, though. I mean, he knows the ropes already. He knows the rules of upper class society. I guess the subtext is unlike Peter Townsend. Mm hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. That's kind of snotty. But anyway, um, he's from an acceptable family. His papa was a career member of parliament, was a privy counselor, not a lord, not even a sir. But, you know, he's he's up there. He knows the people. And then he says, I'm your old faithful. Everyone literally called him that, too. They called it Mar the Margaret set, and he was a member of it, and they would go to the 400 Club, and, you know, he'd pick up the tab. He's the guy she hangs out with when everyone else is busy or married or she just broke up with them. <sighs> and usually guys in movies say this kind of thing when they've been carrying a secret torch for a long time, but I really don't think he loves her in that way. I mean, maybe for position. Mm-hmm. I guess. But I uh, in this case, I don't think Billy Wallace has been like secretly pining for the Margaret all his life. No, I in reality, I believe he was. I believe he brought it up probably in a similar semi joking context for a very long time because it was what they were supposed to do. Right. They had to get married at some point to somebody. It might as well be someone that you at least like a little bit. Oh, true. I guess because you could end up really rolling the dice and get in a really bad situation. Definitely. He moves in for a kiss, and it is an awkward evasion, but it's not a final, like, it's not, ew, and it's not even a WTF. It's just like a, mm, which, <laughs> yeah. and I think they both look at each other like, oh, wait, that was a bombshell, right? And this is, this is kind of too soon for the, okay, that's fine. That's cool. <laughs> they were looking at each other awkward, but I kind of read it as, we're in this room full of people. Are we really going to kiss in front of all these people? Oh. Okay. Because, you know, PDA is not a good thing, right? I guess so. It's just so funny to see their expressions. <laughs> it's more like, huh. <laughs> oh, great. We're going to have to do that. Oh, no. And we're going to have to do that. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, he does talk about having a bunch of children. So obviously the plan is 
to do a bunch of that. Yeah. Well, it's part of the, you know, the business deal. Get married, have kids, pass your wealth down to your kids, die. (laughs) Sounds awesome. (sighs) Well, Margaret goes home. Her arrival to her room isn't very happy. And it's kind of intercut with Elizabeth and Philip in their own room while they're making anniversary celebration plans. Margaret leaves her crap everywhere like a woman with a lady's maid. And she flops on her bed and you can tell she's thinking about what has just happened. Meanwhile, you've got Elizabeth and Philip reading in bed. And Elizabeth's got a book about horse breeding. And Philip's got a book about famous explorers, which is, again, a little on the nose. Really, We know. Different interests. We know. Her book is Bloodstock Breeding by Charles Lester. And in 2018, it's in its third revision. It's still a book you can get. Oh, my goodness. Well, and Elizabeth is nattering on kind of in this way, like he's reading his book. He's hardly paying attention. That's a very husbandly thing to do. I don't even blame him for that. But she's talking about, well, mommy says there's often a crisis at the 10 year mark. And it's a very common thing. And I always thought it was seven. Mm -hmm. Isn't it like the seven year itch or something? Yeah. I mean, stereotypically, yeah. I don't think like factually it's at seven years. I think it's somewhere else, but I don't think it's 10. Hmm. Well, I have to tell you, during year seven was when we moved to Boston and it was a a big culture shock. I'm from the Midwest where you absolutely talk to strangers all the time. And then Chris Graham's from California where it's like, hey, man, nobody's a stranger, blah, blah, blah. And we moved to Boston and it was so hard for us that we clung to each other that whole year. So we really balanced out any possible seven year distance, I think, by needing Mm -hmm. each other so desperately that year. (laughs) So thanks, Boston. Thanks for that. Well, so the emotions of last episode are gone. I mean, they're sleeping or at least reading in the same bed now. And I think it's a different house. It's not Buckingham Palace. I I don't really recognize that bed. Is that Sandringham? Yeah, I wasn't sure either because they were in the same bed. Going back to, you know, the last episode, this whole one, I think Philip is acting like he's accepted his place in this relationship. And he really doesn't say a whole heck of a lot. That's his new role. He just listens to her. And she's the one that's carrying on about having this anniversary party. And I was thinking we should have a big old anniversary party to celebrate hitting our stride. It is as bland as can be. And I guess he's all right with it. But if you think about it, if he's a man of honor, she asked, what will it take to get you fully back? And he said he wanted a title and he wanted precedence and therefore earning people's respect. Well, you know what? He got the title. He did get the precedence. I don't know. I had hoped to see more of what he was doing with his new title and role. This is not the episode for that. Maybe it'll come up later. No, he doesn't do a whole lot. Um, The phone does ring and Elizabeth picks it up and she mouths to him. It's Margaret. She's calling to share her news and ask permission to marry Billy because, of course, she needs that. But that first shot is this moody close up of the phone kind of in a hands free 1958 phone style. And she's just lighting up another cigarette. And Elizabeth, frankly, was not interested until Margaret mentioned getting engaged. She was rolling her eyes and everything at her husband like this girl, man. Well, Elizabeth is actually excited. And (laughs) Philip's face, I just say that Jack, you know, is what his face looks like because whoever marries Margaret will be in his orbit and world all the time, too. Maybe he even knows a little more about Billy Wallace than the women folk do. Now, as a denizen of the Thursday Club, I'd almost be willing to bet 
he knows where every skeleton is in that boy's closet. Oh, yeah, probably. Because when Elizabeth mouths, you know, that's what you do, right? When you're on the phone with somebody Mm -hmm. and your husband is looking at you like, who are you talking to? You kind of mouth it. She mouths Billy Wallace and he actually rolls his eyes and says, oh, Christ. Yeah, he's not down. (laughs) So Margaret is pre-clearing her engagement with the queen. And with no hesitation, Elizabeth says, of course, that's fine. An emphatic yes. And not only that, Elizabeth offers her own 10th anniversary party as kind of a grand occasion for the engagement announcement. And I just think that Margaret is remembering the Peter Townsend affair, the delay, the objections over the actual true love of her life. And the contrast is sort of killing her like Mm -hmm. she is not over peter and i have a feeling she has not really forgiven her sister if she ever does but she has to play the game or be left on the shelf i guess and i can't understand the horror of that but i know it existed might still exist i don't know but um for margaret she has this terror i think of being left behind left alone Mm -hmm. she had to be revisiting all the emotions because she knows that even if her sister says yes that that's even like so much could happen a yes isn't mean that it's going to happen smoothly, you know, and she knows the emotions of that. And she's just reliving it because she just looks defeated in that moment. Well, and but it's she... really crappy that this thing that she doesn't even care about this guy in this way is like, oh, no problem. Check, check. But mm-hmm. the guy that she with her whole heart told her sister would complete her as a person is a no. What world is this? No, she's she's spiraling down. Margaret's just laying there on her back, on her bed, looking defeated with an unlit cigarette in her hand and talking to her sister on the phone. And then she just goes silent. And it's a close up of her fade to opening sequence. <laughs> Normally, we would just skip the opening sequence. And I don't know why neither of us did this time. It must have been fate (laughs) because there is a new person to talk about. Yeah. Well, I didn't actually skip through them because I have yet to update my app. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So so I can either go through it or try and find it on the fast forward. And that doesn't always work exactly. So, yes, there is a second writer. Her name is Amy Jenkins. We have a woman writer, a co-writer of this episode. And she wrote sort of a, this is in the 90s, sort of a Bridget Jones, but this is before Bridget Jones, 20-something beginning lawyer show, I guess. And it reminds me a lot of maybe the first two seasons of Grey's, like where the, the intern doctors have to make their way in the world. Well, this is like the new lawyers have to make their way in the world. And it's full of angst. And that might be her forte. And I wonder if that's what gave Margaret and her journey such the the front in this episode. This is mostly about Margaret and her feelings. And I just wonder, because we've been talking about how mild and how vanilla the portrayal of Elizabeth seems to be, like how she's allowing things to happen to her. And it's not really, I don't know, coming out. And I wonder if having this woman on this one episode is making a giant difference, not to be, you know, sexist or whatever. But I kind of Mm -hmm. wonder if this particular woman maybe is the one that brought all this um, depth to Margaret's character. I would have to agree because up until this point, I was like, okay, this show's good. I know why I watch it. It's, you know, it's a nice period drama, blah, blah. And then this episode came on and I'm like, oh my God, that's my favorite episode. Yeah, it kind of started a little arc of favorite episodes, a little extra boost. And I think Amy Jenkins was the reason. Yay. It was a dark and starry night 
and overdressed aristocrats Elizabeth, Philip, and the Macmillans are all watching the Russian satellite Sputnik on television, and the prime minister is going to tell them about it. So I am very sympathetic to him. He is trying to excite them about something, and he is in a room full of people that are not his intellectual equals here. Dude, you should just stop because the room is not with you. I'm with you. I would like to hear this. He accurately predicts, for one thing, that America will have a crisis of self-doubt now that the Russians have put a satellite in orbit. And yes, the space race was on. The U.S. freaked out. I mean, we saw a little of that stress recently in Hidden Figures, right? Like, mm-hmm. everyone can't fathom the Russians are that far ahead. It it led to money, employment, NASA's prominence. It led to Kennedy saying we will go to the moon. It became our national identity. Um, so yeah, you're right. And he said that the American and English relationship after the Suez Canal ooh, was kind of ruined. Yeah, it was the Suez comment that kind of got me. I was like, OK, this is interesting. And then he brings up the Suez crisis again. And I was like, oh, really? Are we still harping on that as somebody else's problem? That's what I was reading. But you're right. Philip is like a child sitting as close as he can to that television set and just watching it. And Elizabeth keeps trying to interject while uh, Millen is giving this speech and he keeps talking over her, his wife is just sitting there rolling her eyes. Well, like, she's oh my drinking. God. <laughs> and then he says, like any marriage, there'll be ups and downs. We must work to get the relationship back on track. Now, later we understand that that is a very rich comment coming from him, but <laughs> it was a very legitimate thing to compare countries' relationships to marriages. Mm-hmm. And um, Sputnik was a worldwide event. And so they've probably they're on their way to a state dinner of some kind and have paused here on their way down to dinner to watch this coverage. It was, a you know, it was one of those things that it was must see TV and you can't tape it. <laughs> no, you can't. But you know what it also does is it dates this episode because Sputnik 1 was launched on October 4th, 1957. So there you go. It was the size of a beach ball and weighed about 40 pounds. <laughs> It was the first one. Then there was a second one that killed the dog inside. And the Russians lied about how long it took the dog to die. They said he lived for a week. In reality, he lived for mere hours. You know what, though? That's probably a mercy. If if he's not going to be brought back, uh, you don't want him to suffer for a week. Mm-mm. No, no, that's true. Why would they lie about that? Maybe just to make it look like it was safer than it was. But they had like um, monitoring on him. And apparently he died from overheating and panic. I could see why they'd cover that part up. Is his skeleton still floating around? Uh, no, actually, I believe that when Sputnik 2 re-entered the orbit, it burned up. Okay. Well, Elizabeth has a very pointed comment that she said, listening is important in any marriage. And that cracks up Philip, old Philip looking at the TV on the Ottoman. Ha ha ha. <laughs> it cracked me up. I laughed too. Because I wasn't as um, invested in Harold Macmillan as you were. Right. So I was like, ha ha, you got your word in, Liz. Great. The Macmillan Mobile is driving through a beautiful countryside. Mr. and Mrs. are sitting very far apart. It's very sunny at first. And then things turn darker and stormier as the two discuss marital deals and concessions. So we gradually learn over the course of this conversation that Mrs. McMillan has a long-term serious boyfriend, man friend. Their relationship has been a carefully guarded front, at least from the press, because 
other people seem to know about it. They have been remarkably discreet, I must say. But now that he's the prime minister, the scrutiny may create a problem. And dutiful, Mrs. is determined to end it, to protect everybody. And Mm -hmm. it seems like she's promised to do this before, I guess. But this time she is determined. Now, I will say her boyfriend of 30 years um, was a member of parliament in a Scottish area. So this might be Scotland that everybody is in right now. Oh, that's excellent. Yes, it does look like Scotland, doesn't it? It's so sad, though. I do feel bad for Harold here because he's like, well, I'll just wait in the car for you. And she's like, no, it's going to take a while. And he's like, how long could it possibly take? She's like, a couple days. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) I felt bad for him. It's like, oh, you're not just going to go in there, break up with him and come out. Terrific. The prime minister's car arrives at this very posh house in the rain with a very posh man standing at a window watching as only one person gets out of the car. It's the man friend in the window, Robert Boothby, Bob Boothby, who gives Macmillan, the husband, a smirk, it has to be said, before moving off into the house to go down and greet his girlfriend. I love in this particular scene the camera angle when the car pulls up it's from above and it's just dark and rainy and this dark car pulls up it's all dark and then the footman comes out with an umbrella and he's just got this bright red jacket on to help mrs mcmillan out of the car and it's all shot from above which presumably is the view that boothby is seeing it was just lovely very moody I just want to say here, the shenanigans going on among the, quote, acceptable social class here, while poor Margaret can't even marry the man of her dreams. I mean, come on now. Boothby might have been the father of Macmillan's third child, and he later had notable and shocking affairs with men. That's fine. Have them. But then don't prevent people from marrying Peter Townsend. Do you know what I'm saying? It's irritating. The police didn't even fully investigate the death of Mrs. McMillan's brother, the 10th Duke of Devonshire. They thought he was murdered by his doctor, but they laid off and didn't question the doctor too heavily because they were afraid that that would bring her into the public eye, the wife of the prime minister having an affair, and it would be dangerous to have press all around her all the time. That's how much they get away with. They were known in society. This relationship has been going on for what, almost 30 years. And on one hand, I want to say, you know, that's lovely that you can have such a caring relationship for so long and keep the spark alive. On the other hand, come on, you're married. But divorce wasn't possible in the political circles that Harold was in. Well, no, I get that. I get that. And, you know, so many people married so young to please their families that do you have two heirs up in the nursery? Mm-hmm. then do what you will, because we're all young people that have emotions and, you know, we can exercise them after we've done our duties to our family and etc. So there were lots of accommodations of this nature being made. My problem is that they are preventing Margaret from a wholesome relationship while simultaneously flouting all of the whole marital purity that they are supposedly trying to uphold. And I will tell you this, Upon investigating this, I found out that Anthony Eden, remember him, from last time, actually worked very, very, very hard as a divorced man, thank you, behind the scenes to try to help Princess Margaret be able to marry Peter Townsend and keep her title and maybe have their children be excluded from succession, which is probably the minimal thing that you could ram through. But he really, 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 really did try to help her marry him. That's nice. So I feel 
better about that. At least there was one person in her corner. Mm-hmm. Someone who actually had some power. I did not know that. Um, Cecil Beaton. Cecil is now taking Margaret's fairy tale birthday portrait, and the Queen Mum is helping. Margaret herself is smoking and angry between shots and actually smacked one of the maids who, if you look at her, has a face on like she's trying not to cry for the entire rest of the scene. (laughs) She's embarrassed and Margaret smacked her. Yeah, well, we said Margaret's spiraling down and now she's doing it in a very fluffy princessy gown in front of this fairy tale backdrop with Cecil and his one, two, three, quite magnificent, his whole carry on thing. She is so not into this. So the new lady-in-waiting, who I wrote is cannon fodder, because this is how Margaret is going to make her opinion known, is by having the new lady-in-waiting to it, advocates for, quote, complexity and reality in the portrait. And the room just stares at her. Like, and the queen mom actually very condescendingly says, they don't want that from us. They want us to help them escape. (laughs) And then Cecil backs it up by going on with this story about how this woman is going to see this picture and it's going to change her life and bring her out of her, you know, humdrum existence. It's a Cinderella story. So he tailors his stories to his audience. It's literally the Cinderella story. He even mentions the word scullery. There's a drab young woman in her scullery. So much washing up to do. She longs (laughs) for hope. She wants to believe her life has some meaning beyond chores, which gets to Margaret. Me too, Cecil. Me too. (laughs) She is, I mean, she reacts to that because she is a woman who wants to believe that her life has some meaning beyond chores too. He goes on with his little story. She opens a magazine to her Royal Highness's portrait for one glorious transforming moment. She becomes a princess too. She is lifted out of her miserable, pitiful reality. Is no one noticing that Margaret literally has tears in her eyes right now? (laughs) She is getting upset. As she should, because this is just more drama that she wants to get away from. She doesn't like that image. It's fake. She knows it's fake. And this is just perpetuating that. Well, he calls her, quote, the ideal. And so Cecil is twisting the knife in Margaret's heart. And the queen mom is just delighted, like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yes, uh so happy. No one is seeing Margaret's reaction except the maids, the smacked one, and the other one who was literally afraid to take the glass of water back. (laughs) (laughs) The new lady in waiting is quite confident. I I liked that. So I was trying to figure out who the new lady's maid is. And I think there are two ladies' maids in this episode. I think this is not the same one that appears later. I believe, and based on the credits, there is somebody called Judy Montague, who in fact is new this year. So it makes more sense. And if so, if it is Judy Montague here in this room, this person, speaking of upper class cockamamie history, by the way, she might be an illegitimate child herself. One more illustration of how far off the rails was acceptable as long as you had a title or a family name. Um, Everybody knew 
quote, knew that she was an Earl's daughter, really, though her legal father was a Jewish member of Parliament. <laughs> okay, you just kind of blown my mind that it's not the same one as later in the show. I don't think so, because there is a character credited as Judy Montague. In reality, Judy Montague <laughs> is new this year. Huh. I'm not saying it isn't the same one. I'm just saying there are two <laughs> credited in this show. Oh. And the storyline seems to match both of them. So I am moving forward with the concept that this is a different one than the later ones. Okay. So I could be wrong. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to have to go back and look at it again. So she later, if this is Judy Montague, becomes this kind of bohemian artist patron of the arts in Rome. Stays part of Margaret's cool, bohemian, rich inner circle for her whole life. So <laughs> um, like she doesn't care. Say whatever to the queen mom because I don't have to be here. <laughs> kind of like. <laughs> so that was good. Uh-huh. Okay. Cecil did take a very fairy tale portrait of Margaret um, about this time. And the costuming, they got the dress exactly right, except Vanessa's shoulders are way more exposed <laughs> than in the original. But it's the same kind of look on her face. Like, I don't want to be here, but I'm smiling. Um, she did a great job. And so did the costuming department. They're good with that. And, and even um, Dorothy McMillan, she looks an awful lot like the real Dorothy McMillan. Who looks like <laughs> Agatha Christie. <laughs> no, that's exactly what I thought, too. That's funny. Yeah. Hmm. It's a young adult's dress-up party time, and suddenly Billy Wallace is quite popular. (laughs) And one of his friends, who turns out to be Colin Tennant, the groom from before, is taking umbrage at the fact that Billy's engagement, at this point just a rumored engagement, has made him quite popular with the ladies. In fact, his exact words to his friends are, has that hapless, misshapen crane ever been regarded as an object of desire for the whole 20 years we've known him? And frankly, he's cuter than either man in this conversation, by the way, but whatever. (laughs) But his frenemy is so mad and taken aback. Yeah, there's like four or five women circled around Billy at this point, and they're just giggling. It was gross. He's like like Scarlett O'Hara. I know. (laughs) He totally is in the center of this thing. I loved how this scene started. The camera follows through the party. So you go from one room to the next behind Colin, and you see, you know, all these younger people dressed in, you know, very fancy clothes, um, having this very boisterous party. Partying is kind of a theme in this particular episode, too. So this is like the first party, you know, and it's younger people and they're loud. And even though they're dressed fancy, they're behaving differently mm-hmm. than we're going to see people behaving later. Oh, I, I love that. Margaret herself is getting ready to attend a party. Uh, she is at her vanity. She has a lady's maid helping her put on her jewelry. She's wearing the same tiara that she was wearing for the portrait sitting earlier. It's the Cartier halo tiara i guess it's kind of like the little black dress of tiaras you know it goes from day to night wear <laughs> well number one i thought that only married women wore tiaras so i went down a giant rabbit hole so i'll provide you a link with that evidently that rule is not enforced any longer all over europe what have we come to whatever <laughs> but um so the message comes from her friend blandford descendant of Consuelo Vanderbilt, by the way, that, hey, um, (laughs) I do not think old Billy is going to be making it to dinner because he's indisposed. So Margaret is like, indisposed? He can't be indisposed. We're announcing our engagement. And she goes to see for herself. Did you like this dress? 
because it's not wrinkled yet. Well, I did like it. I actually liked it the most in motion. I liked it the best when she was going from the car into the house and Mm -hmm. it was kind of flowing behind her. I Mm -hmm. am absolutely not a fan of a strapless dress for any occasion. So no, in fact, I did not like this dress. Oh, okay. No, I agree with you on the strapless part, but I just thought it was just so different and so lovely. And Margaret gets the best costumes, I think. She gets the best gowns. But yeah. Well, I thought so. And I was holding out hope for a Margaret-heavy episode to have lots of choices. I did not find great scope. So that is all. Really? Yes. I love this one. I just wish that the top was the bodice. The strapless part was just a little higher up. It just looked like it was getting a little uncomfortable. Look like, you know, when you wear one of those dresses, you feel like you need to like be hiking it up all night. I have had to wear a bra <laughs> since I was 10. So um, that is all I have to say about strapless anything. <laughs> Not possible. Eh? Uh, sad. Um, we see her Rolls Royce pull up to a very lovely townhome and she rushes inside. This is that part that you loved her dress in action and it is gorgeous. And she goes inside to find Billy self-medicating after his dual injury. Well, now, so she's a hundred percent mad, I'd say until she sees all the mm-hmm. blood and then she goes down to maybe 70% mad. And cause you know, blood does seem sort of indisposed and you know, <laughs> what else helps his case is right when she comes in, the doctor says, no, you must keep your leg up, sir. So then it's like, wah, 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 ratchet down the anger. What is happening? <laughs> he says, oh, shit, when he sees her. And all the manservants look like they want to say that, but they don't. <laughs> They're like, oh, we out is what they actually do. And they they leave, even the doctor. They just, it's almost like a comedy where they get clustered in the door and can't get out, kind of. Oh, my, <laughs> fast enough. I think she did have a touch of concern when she came into the house. Because she had heard he was, you know, injured and she kind of pauses right at the bottom of the stairs for just a second. Like, OK, what am I going to find here? And then she goes up. So I do think I agree with you on the anger, but I think there was some concern mixed in there. And so when she walks in and she sees that, you know, he's sitting in bed, smoking a cigar, drinking a Bloody Mary. But I think it's going more towards the disgust level at this point. So he reveals that, quote, your friend Colin Tennant took offense at something that I did. And at first I thought, well, now, was one of those ladies his wife, Colin Tennant's new wife? I mean, that would make sense, right? Yeah. And then he (laughs) says, you'll laugh until you spit. Will she? He does reveal that all of whatever has just happened to him is the result (laughs) of a duel. Honey, I'm sorry. It's no big deal. Just unforeseen cirques. <laughs> like, what? I'm going to start saying that. Unforeseen cirques. Yeah, that is a good one. He regales her with this incredible story. But while he's doing this, we see what really went down. And, you know, when he's making it sound like gentlemanly, he's really getting dragged, half-dressed, to the duel spot. <laughs> yeah, he says a duel is a duel. So I stepped up to the mark, and then you see him being dragged. No, no. And he doesn't even <laughs> have his shoes anymore or his coat. Okay, so first time through, I was like, was he sleeping with someone? Is that what we're supposed to get? Because otherwise, why are all of his friends so grim? And unrelenting about this duel. They're not giving up. They are dragging his Alec down to the duel field. One guy even went and got his own dueling pistols. I mean, they are not playing. And so I was thinking we're supposed to think he was caught with Colin's wife. I mean, even though that didn't happen in real life, and it turns out that's not what it is. 
that's what my impression was about what happened, which would make 100% sense because it's Colin that he's fighting with. And it worked out, you know, just like in uh, Hamilton, you know, everything we know about duels, we learn from Hamilton, you know, it's the 10 paces, they turn and they shoot. Unlike Hamilton, it turned out a whole lot better for Billy because he just got shot in the leg. These people grow up shooting from a young age. And if Colin Tennant had wanted to shoot him through the heart, he would have shot him through the heart. Colin Tennant knew he was winging him with, Mm -hmm. as he calls it later, a flesh wound, although it looks right in the meat to me. But okay, (laughs) you can see that he aims the pistol low. Now, was he aiming for his thigh (laughs) or was he being a real jerk? (laughs) No, I seriously think whatever Colin Tennant wants to hit, he's hitting. So no, Colin was not defending his wife's honor, but in fact, Margaret's honor. And evidently the word is out about their engagement, Billy and Margaret. And here's Billy letting it go to his head, all this new popularity or whatnot, the big ugly crane or whatever they called him earlier. And evidently he slept with someone, an actress, in pictures, you know. Um, And is this how it starts? Like, is this? I know it's a marriage of convenience. I know. And everybody knows. No one's under any illusions that this is a true love match. But like the lack of respect, sleeping with someone right in front of her best friends. Mm Mm-hmm. In real life, he went on vacation in the full expectation that he would come back and bury Princess Margaret. So confident was he in the strength of their friendship and I guess the sheer business-like aspect of it that he told her that he had slept with someone uh, on vacation. And to his great surprise, Margaret immediately broke it off. It wasn't the same thing as here where all her friends knew and it was in the public eye or whatever. And he actually for many years afterwards said, I could have been married to Princess Margaret, but I had a big mouth. Not that he cheated. (laughs) That wasn't the bad part. It was that he was honest and he always blamed himself for being honest. So, you know, there's a little character illumination for you. Oh yeah, definitely. I thought exactly the same thing. It was like, oh, because he had said that, um, The relationship with Peter Townsend, he called it girlish nonsense that got out of hand and was never the big thing on her part that people claim. But I'm like, we can't even believe you because you say that just shooting off your mouth is why you didn't get married. So you think that if you had lied to her, everything would be great. There you go. Well, Margaret breaks it off. Uh, In real life and in the show, she puts him in his place and reminds him who he's dealing with, who, in fact, she is. And she gets right up on him and basically says, take a look at this face. I have a look of disappointment and disgust like every woman will wear toward you for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I thought this was great because she was like. Uh, kind of taking back her life at this point. She's like, I am not going to yoke myself to this knucklehead. There's no way. She calls him, you pathetic, weak, and contemptible fool. And he looks so surprised that she's reacting this way. And that actually tracks with his surprise in real life. At Like, wait, I didn't, we were just friends that were going to get married. I didn't know it was this big of a deal, <laughs> kind of. <Yeah. laughs> what a bonehead. Although here's the thing, in fairness, they have been the bitter co-workers together for at least 10 years. True. So so how is he supposed to know she's flipped into serious territory when he is still, you know. Good point. Excellent point. So it's not him. He hasn't changed. (laughs) I have a very strong belief that everyone knows who he is and acts accordingly. And she's the one that's changed. (laughs) He did get married not too long afterwards. 
but she banished him for a year, I think. Banished. That sounds so Tudor-like, doesn't it? <laughs> she was at his wedding and he was at hers, so. Like you do. <laughs> hey, you know what? This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what Margaret does now that she does not have a fiancé. And now, a brief intermission. are at another party. This is party number two. The Queen and Philip's grown-up, very subdued dinner party. And we find out that there's been a change of plans for the evening. There are a couple of empty seats by Queen Elizabeth's place. And so, while the footmen are discreetly removing one of the place settings, Michael Aideen quietly informs Queen Elizabeth that Margaret is not announcing her engagement this evening. Philip, across the table, cannot stand not being able to hear this because Uncle Dickie, who is sitting right next to Queen Elizabeth, has an eyebrow. He is very surprised, and the Queen Mom looks worried. All of them know something's gone awry. I mean, a place setting's being removed. (laughs) It's their anniversary party. So as far as anyone else knows, Margaret is not the main event, but is an accessory. So at least there's that. Always an accessory, huh, Margaret? I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm not used to seeing Michael Adeen without his mustache yet. (laughs) He isn't either. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) But Margaret comes in and sits next to her sister. Cleverly, watch this. While she sits, the extra chair is spirited away and the man on her other side scooches and fills the extra space. Such well-brought-up pretending. Like, nothing's wrong. Everyone's on board. (laughs) Everyone participates in the cover-up. I missed it, actually. I had to go back. I'm like, wait, was there another chair? I had to go back and watch it a second time. That's how smooth they were. I wouldn't even have noticed if I was at that party, maybe because I would have been looking at the queen mom's dress and thinking, how horrendous is that thing? It was this white monstrosity with this huge shawl-like collar with huge blue embroidery on it and these flutter sleeves over what I'm sure wasn't, but to me looked like a white dry fit base layer. (laughs) You know, those long skinny sleeves that, you know, you wear first in the wintertime. It's like your base layer. Yeah, that's what it looked like she had on. It was it was scary. We have picked on the queen mom twice now. We probably better lay off. I don't you know what? I'm actually not picking on her as much as I am just applauding the costuming department for making her look so horrendous. I mean, it, that's their that's their goal, right? She's not supposed to look, you know, glamorous. And that's just her look. And they're doing such a great job. Now, Queen Elizabeth, is she or is she not wearing the same gown she wore to the ballet? Well, I think so. But I think also it's an optical illusion because you've got a lot of the same regalia. So sometimes the dress just backgrounds because I don't, I'm sure there's a whole wardrobe of dresses that look very similar to wear mm-hmm. with that stuff. So I don't know. There's a very long table with fancy, full formality place settings and gorgeous yellow centerpieces. And it's time for Philip to give his toast to his wife. And he's going to share some marital wisdom that is received differently by different people at the table. He starts out with a little humor, like you do with the best speeches of a man he'd met who said, my wife is a doctor of philosophy and more important than I am. 
Oh, yes, says Philip. We have that trouble in our family, too. Oh, everyone laughs on the table. Ha, ha, ha. So it's acceptance again. So he would never, like two years ago, have been that willing to give himself a subservient place. So there's a little progress. He has another little dad joke. Oh, the secret of 10 years of happy marriage? Different interests. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Actually, my parents used to say that for a while. They're like, the secret to our marriage is that we take separate vacations. Oh, well, that's not <laughs> bad. And they did. Yeah, they did for years. I mean, they took obviously together vacations. But once a year, my mom would go off on an adventure with one of her friends. And my dad would go off on an adventure with one of his friends. And they said that that was the secret to their happy marriage. Oh, good. Well, he gets a little bit into the philosophy of marriage and mentions that you end up knowing more about the other person than they know themselves. And you see the McMillans kind of looking guilty. Down there in the rough, says Philip, that is where you find the treasure. It was a lovely speech. I don't think the queen could make one quite as lovely. I think he did such a good job giving it. He's so comfortable, you know, being funny and then being serious. We saw it a lot on the cruise where he would address the crew. So it's the same kind of skill set, I guess. I think I thought he did a great job. And then at the end, he proposes a toast. In the name of love, I give you mon petit chou, Lilibet, Elizabeth, the queen. Mon petit chou means my little cabbage head. <laughs> which is actually a genuine term of endearment. He didn't make it up. It's like calling your little kid pumpkin. Also sounds weird if you think about it. So Margaret takes the opportunity of everyone standing for this delightful toast to love to leave the room. <laughs> she was seen this time. Queen Mom was staring at her with a look of concern on her face and, you know, eyes were darting, but exit stage left. There's a still life of the stairs with this really loud jazz music playing in the background. And Margaret's lady-in-waiting goes to investigate what's going on. She goes up the stairs and she peeks in on a very drunken Margaret reacting to her current situation in life. She is a mess. So it's Ella Fitzgerald's song, Angel Eyes, blasting really rudely, I have to say, through the hallways. I hate that. When you can hear someone else's music, it makes me irritated. Um, so the lyrics, um, I don't know if we hear all these lyrics, but here is some more on the nose lyric work from the music director. Try to think that love's not around, but it's uncomfortably near. My old heart ain't gaining no ground because my angel eyes ain't here. So... What we're supposed to take from that is I, Margaret, am still officially pining for Peter Townsend. And that's why I can't move forward. I mean, that's what I take it as. Um, and then, so drink up all you people, order anything you see, have fun, you happy people, the laugh and the jokes on me. And you know how song lyrics sound like they're like your life. They're speaking directly to you and your broken heart. And I have to tell you that Princess Margaret is Orturing herself with this song that it is so specific to her situation. Well, she certainly took the advice to drink everything you see because she is stumbling around this room. She's tripping over things and throwing them about and in one second acting really wild and fake laughing and then the next just weeping. It was, it was a very powerful performance for Vanessa Kirby, I thought. The rage and craziness. I'm just like, what was that filming day like? Did everyone <laughs> clap? I bet they did. At the end of each take, I bet she got applause from the crew. I bet she did because it was really quite alarming. Uh, mm -hmm. It was like Daniel Day-Lewis level getting into the emotional state of your character. <laughs> 
Yeah, she let herself be really raw and not very attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Her makeup is streamed on her face. Her hair's a mess. She's wearing this crazy bathrobe. Got the cigarette in one hand, the drink in the other, and just dancing around her room. You know, in real life, Margaret was actually a very accomplished musician. So the fact that they're tying this music into her would probably be true for her. She was an accomplished pianist. She sang, you know, we saw that in the last season for singing, but that was true. She really did that. So I think she probably did, you know, choose music to fit her mood. And that one really fits. Well, and I also don't think this is a lady in waiting that is observing her. I think it is Bobo McDonald's sister, Ruby, who went from nanny to ladies maid for Margaret in the same way that Bobo McDonald did for Elizabeth. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. It's really hard to say, but she's very reluctant. She's compelled to come up the stairs and see what the... H-E double hockey sticks is going on because there's thumping and what is happening? I got to make sure everything's okay. So she does peek in the open double doorway, but the onlooker, whoever she may be, has no idea what to do. And I don't blame her because I don't even know, like, do I even get involved with this level of crazy? Will it pass on its own? She eventually turns to just go. I mean, what can you do? She's lost her mind. Yeah, I don't think she could do anything. I mean, she's a woman. She knows she knows what a woman who's just hit bottom with her grief and her sadness and her loneliness looks like. And she knows that there's nothing you can say. Even if she was the best friend of Margaret, which she's not, there's nothing she could say. So you're right. A friend kind of knows when to give you some space. And so if it is Ruby McDonald, she's been around since Margaret was a child. And if it is the other credited lady in waiting, Elizabeth Cavendish, that person has been around since Queen Elizabeth and she were little girls playing together. So she would also know Margaret well enough. So if it's either of those ladies, they are dear and long-term friends of hers. Mm -hmm. So I wish I knew which one it was, but... Everybody's got the same haircut in this year, except Margaret, you know, and all the Bohemians. Um, Everybody seems to have the same hair color. So I really wish they had worn name tags. (laughs) That would make it easier. Or just like, you know, like a little subtitle underneath their name. This is so-and-so. Like a Marauder's Map that says Lady Elizabeth Cavendish. That's right. (sighs) In the light of day, we get a close-up of a radio dial being set. And it's Harold McMillan. He's listening to Eisenhower's take on the relations with Russia. And it literally reinforces what he was just telling an unresponsive queen and Philip about the special relationship between the United States and Britain. He gets this little smile of satisfaction, like, yes, aha, I was right. And Eisenhower agrees with me. And he picks up his teacup and he's going in to tell his wife about his premonition. You know, like, I was right. I got the whole tone of modern (laughs) political discourse correct. So he's really excited and he wants to go tell somebody. And his first instinct is to go tell his wife. But his wife is already talking to somebody on the phone in another room. We don't actually see her, but we hear her words and they are just going to bring him right down. She's on the phone, obviously, to her boyfriend. She says, I can't have him touch me or near me. His weakness repels me. His love disgusts me. That is horrible. I mean, I don't like this guy. And they always say, if you listen at doors, you deserve what you get. But that is harsh. Mm -hmm. Well, In real life, you know, he knew about this and I'm going to guess that he heard some conversations like that too. I just have to imagine that he did. 
I will say, though, he gets his revenge because in real life, he survives her by 28 years. So he gets his peace and quiet. Also, in the harsh light of day, Margaret is sitting up in bed. She's smoking again. There's tears in her eyes still. There's tobacco on her teeth. And the queen mom comes in to presumably wake her up. And she's showing her Cecil's ridiculous birthday portraits. I have to say the queen mom is trying too hard to ignore or paper over Margaret's serious depression. She's glassy eyed. She's unresponsive to commentary. She's not in the room at all. She needs to talk to somebody. Uh, She goes to look at herself in the mirror. Like what a contrast to Cecil's fairy tale princess photos all over the bed. We have got our eyeliner and our mascara all under our eyeballs like a raccoon. We have been crying. Our eyes are puffy. My hair is all whack. Who am I even? I mean, it's not good. She does not think the person in the mirror is worth very much. I'm sorry to say. Uh, We hear that evidently first Billy and then his mama and then his grandmama escalating um, levels of pleading have been on the phone to the queen mom all morning to, I guess, get the engagement back on. (laughs) Does this family not have any dignity that they're throwing themselves at Margaret's mother to try and get things back on track? But the thing is, the queen mom seems to think that was perfectly acceptable for them to do because she was like dangling that out there. Well, they are sorry. And then when (laughs) Margaret says no, she's like, fine, no problem. We'll find someone else. But I want you to notice that the queen mom thought that the pleading of the extended family was a perfectly acceptable thing to to at least try. (laughs) And she's giving these options for Margaret, you know, these men who are all relations. Like, I'm sorry, Margaret is a very modern woman and modern women do not marry their cousins. (laughs) This one's okay. His mother is a Catholic, but they have their lands intact. And he looks good on a polo field. And then she also mentions Prince Christian of Hanover. You know, the whole German marriage market that the British royal family has been chopping at for generations. Um, There are a lot of principalities. Margaret thought she was hitting rock bottom the night before, but now in the light of day, it's going farther down. Not only, you know, is she still alone, her mother's trying to match her up for a non-love match. She's probably hung over as all get out. So it's gotten worse. That last night was bad. This day is even worse. Her shins probably hurt, too, because she sure banged into every dang thing with her legs that whole night, didn't she? (laughs) She did. Her room must be trashed. Although maybe the maid came in already and tidied it up. No, the maid was operating while the queen mom was in there in the background. Oh, I missed that, too. She was picking stuff up like it was all draped on chairs and whatnot. And the maid, I mean, what can you do? Because she probably got screamed at last night. Mm -hmm. So now under cover of queen mom. She decides, okay, I can get in there now because nobody's going to scream at me for picking up these pantyhose like I tried to do last night. Yeah. Well, you know, opening of the curtains, that's time that says you can come in. That's been the tradition on this show. That means everybody can come in and do their business. Margaret is not pleased about this. And she gets on the phone and she's calling her new lady in waiting. No, I don't think so. I don't think this is I think this is Lady Elizabeth Cavendish, her long. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? We can talk about because she's. Yeah, okay, because I don't, she said, I know what the job of waiting and waiting is. So I thought that meant that she, they were going over her job responsibilities. Hmm. This is Lady Elizabeth Cavendish, but I, in my head, I thought that's who 
we've been talking about this whole time as the new lady in waiting. I'm just saying, if it is really Lady Elizabeth Cavendish, she has been around that household since Elizabeth and Margaret were little tiny girls. Right. She's not new. She's been a lady in waiting for almost 10 years at this point. She is one of Margaret's very best friends. She runs in the same set with... Margaret. She has hung out with her. They are on a friend basis. And what Mm -hmm. I took it as is when Margaret called her and goes, look, I know what the job description of lady in waiting is. You do this and you do this. But seriously, can you introduce me to somebody who does not like horses and who does not know my mother? Mm -hmm. Like, I know that's not your job description, but like, girl. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm sorry. I interrupted. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) I don't even know where we are right now. Well, Uh, I think this is a different person. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sort of confused. And if we're confused and we like watch it and then watch it again, then watch it in slow motion and backtracking. (laughs) Imagine what the regular person just watching it the first time thought. Okay. Margaret gets invited to a normal people dinner party. And Lady Cavendish says, well, they're all normal. But in their own way, they're quite exceptional and possibly not deferential. It's like, okay, that's exactly what Margaret wants, right? She wants nobody that she's been associated with up until this point because it's all been a fail. It is so weird to go to a party by yourself where you just know the hostess or host. It's a couple of those kind of holiday parties I have to go to every year where you know maybe a couple of people. It's just so stressful. So it's pretty brave of Margaret to just knock on the door and walk in. Now it's already looking like a pretty cool party. You got jazz going on, but not on a record player. You've got a live band. And I think it is really great (laughs) because the greeting is super awkward. I would like for all of you to say hello to our guest of honor, Her Royal Highness, the Princess Margaret. There's a giant pause and everyone goes, hello. Like I wrote it in tiny letters. Hello. (laughs) And (laughs) I think Lady Elizabeth brought up properly to smooth over any awkward situations, immediately introduces the piano player first and it breaks the ice. I thought that was really clever and good of her. Yeah, because he just plays a couple notes on the piano and everyone's like, oh, ha, 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 this is a fun party. Of the three parties, I want to be at this one. It is our first real sighting of people of color on this show in London. You know, not in Papua New Guinea or somewhere. (laughs) Not only the jazz band, by the way, there's actually a couple of guests of color, too. And the age of the guests is all different. You know, at the other parties, they were all very mm, like there was the young people party and then there was the mature people party and this one there's older people and younger people it's just such a mix that's why i want to be here (laughs) i think i'd fit in here i think anybody would feel more comfortable like if you don't know anybody being in a room like this with there's all these different people from different backgrounds and different ages and different interests if you go from one group to another you're gonna find someone that you share some type of commonality with and this kind of group the way that the party's set up, it's set up that you could do that. You know, you could mingle. It's more intimidating when there's a whole room full of cool people that know each other Mm -hmm. versus the party where everyone might know each other, but politeness requires that they include you. Mm. That's a whole other kind of comfort level for an introvert. Like someone will talk to you because when you turn to the left or to the right, that is how it goes. Mm-hmm. For 15 minutes, that guy will talk to you. And then for the next 15, the other guy will talk to you. It's fine. You don't have to like come on up to these artists and try to be like, hey, I'm also cool. <laughs> oh, you've seen me at these parties. <laughs> 
Margaret is completely awkward, though. Imagine, she's probably very rarely gone places where she's gone alone, first off. And to go into a place where no one cares who she is, this whole situation is foreign to her. It's exactly what she wanted. But I think in this scene, she's like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? I don't even know how to behave with this group of people. Yeah, I think she thought she wanted the non-deferential, but simultaneously she wants people to uh, be respectful of her position and a little bit in awe and ain't nobody in awe in this room. Uh, she kind of can't believe where she's landed. <laughs> I want to say really quick, speaking of diversity, that Shilpa, the first actual guest that gets introduced, is an Indian name and I didn't see an Indian person on the sofa. But there you are. It's a super diverse party, I guess, mm -hmm. <laughs> with, the two, with the two people of color or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what did you think of her outfit? Um, again, strapless. Not good. The end. Well, she came in. She was wearing it's got a bolero jacket. It's like was gray jacket, I think, over an avocado green dress that I personally could never wear. I would not wear that dress. It was very form fitting. Um, it had this horizontal chevron pattern. It was olive green, which actually is a good color on me, but I, that dress wouldn't have worked on me. Um, but she keeps the jacket on for a long time. So even though it is a strapless dress, we don't know that yet. No. Nope. Still didn't like it. Huh? I, yeah, I, I stand by my disappointment in, I think it's because I had high expectations. But when it's Princess Margaret, you think, oh, now, now we are going to get in to some fashion. And, and I don't know, the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were disappointed in her strapless dress, you're certainly going to be disappointed in the menu. We get a close up of the first dish that's being served and it's shrimp stuffed avocado. This immediately reminded me of the bell jar by Sylvia Plath. It is one of the very few things I'm sorry to say that has ever stuck with me about the bell jar. The quote, avocado pears stuffed with crab meat and mayonnaise, followed by the horrible food poisoning. You know, careful, Margaret, but that avocados mean, I mean, you are on the cusp of fashion and trends. In 1956, in fact, in Woman's Own magazine, there was a whole article about how hip it was to eat avocados. The avocado pear is an acquired taste, said the magazine, but it only takes seconds to acquire it, I assure you. So this party is ahead of all the trends, I think, is what we're supposed to take from this mix of people in the food. Like, Margaret's never seen an avocado before. Look at her face. She looked like um, I would probably look if I was at one of those fancy tables because she's like looking to see what everybody picks up as a fork. She doesn't know what she's supposed to use. Imagine that. The princess doesn't know what cutlery to use. I mean, seriously, do you need a knife to cut an avocado? Uh, well, everyone else is using knife and fork for their avocados. And the avocado is bright green. It's hard to keep that avocado green like that. You got to put some lime juice on it right away. I am guaranteeing you those are made out of clay, by the way. <laughs> because I don't know how long this filming took to get all these different shots, but those avocados would never have lasted. So there is a prop guy whose whole job is making clay avocados for the day. That's something else. That would look really interesting on your resume. That's true. <laughs> so old Margaret, while she's wrestling with the unfamiliar food, cleverly also accessorized with the exotic green olive slices. <laughs> the 50s killed me. Um, so the man on either side of her are talking through her at each other, which would never happen at Elizabeth's dinners. No. But this goes back to what you said, that these people all knew each other. And she's an outsider. Rather than talk to the person in the middle 
who is obviously awkward and feeling out of it, they feel no necessity to include her in anything. They just talk to each other right in front of her. Yeah, she's awkward. She's feeling bad, like very alone in a room full of people. The mystery wedding photographer sits down next to Margaret, who is sitting all alone with her drink and her cigarette, and they begin to gossip, and he kind of melts her icy exterior. And isn't it absolutely glorious when someone saves you in this way at a party? I would feel super warm toward whoever sat next to me at this kind of party and deigned to speak to me at this point after all this awkwardness. I think she's probably wondering, like, when do I leave? When do I leave? He opens with, these dabblers and freaks seem to know each other very well. (laughs) He tells her, oh, we've met, but he won't tell her where. Mm, Perhaps it'll come to you. (laughs) And then they proceed to start dishing slash slagging everyone in the room. At first, though, she isn't really receptive. She's very cold and quite snotty to him. He doesn't care. No, he just keeps talking. He's like, I know what you're feeling. I'm just going to go with you. You've played the game, haven't you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Tell me about so-and-so over there. And then you come up with a funny name for them. And that's what they were doing. It was it was really fun. Did you get the names? I could only pull one. Okay. So he points out this couple. It's Mr. and Mrs. Fry, a very attractive couple. They rate them. They're sevens, they're eights, whatever they are. Um, they dazzle in public, he says, in private too. And then he gives her a look and he goes, on that another time, perhaps. And Margaret is like, whoa, what is happening to me? (laughs) What is happening? We see John Profumo. Now, I will tell you, we're not going to talk about him in this episode. Scandal follows him in a future episode for sure. But Mm -hmm. here he is in the room. It's our first sighting of a big scandal. Um, But for now, we move on. Next to him is the poet, John Benjamin. Again, I don't even know who that was. I thought they were saying Don Benjamin. And so I'm looking for Don's or Dan's or... So I couldn't find anything, but now you found it. No, his last name is B-E-T-J-E-M-A-N, Benjamin. And they quote from his poem, In Westminster Abbey, which is irreverent and sarcastic for real. We'll link you to the um, the rest of that, but it's basically like um, a stuffy aristocrat's prayer to God in Westminster Abbey. Yeah, it's very snotty and it's very anti-establishment and fits perfectly with this party. So why does Margaret know it so well? Like she hasn't memorized. Because her friend, Lady Elizabeth, has been having an affair with him for years. His own children called Lady Elizabeth his beloved other wife. So the whole comment she makes where it's like, is it true he has two wives? Okay, that comment's weird, right? Since she knows full well. Yes, kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, But Margaret should already know that. And I think she does because I think she's trying it on. Like, well, I know some shocking stuff, too. And she's trying to shock him and failed because he simply took it on board and said, it would be better if he had three. We don't want anyone conventional around here. And it's like, oh, my God. (laughs) She really did. She tried to pull out some factoid and Mm -hmm. shot her down. This whole poem thing is kind of when they crossed the line from people just idly talking at a party to this person could be a friend of mine. I kind of like this person. You know, they, you cross that line, you have that moment. So they're getting along very well because it, they start to walk through the party. I guess Margaret's not going to leave after all. Mm. And they're walking. Yeah, they're walking through the party. And she realizes that she does know who he is. She calls him that wedding photographer. And he's like, whoa, 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 now. Whoa. <laughs> 
That's not cool. I'm really, you know, an artist. <laughs> well, he shows her some of his work, in fact, on the stairs. Portraits, she says, and he takes exception with that, too. This isn't a portrait. This is art. It is art. I was really surprised that Lady Elizabeth had so many of his pieces just winding their way up the staircase. It looked gorgeous. These were beautiful photographs, all in black and white, very close up. His work was like that. I mean, in real life, he had been photographing the family for about a year. He knew Margaret. Margaret knew him in real life. So this isn't how they really met. He had done this portrait of Anne and Charles that is just stunning. We'll put it on the show notes or a link to, I think I just have to do a link to his work, but it's Anne and Charles by a globe. And it's just so beautiful and striking. You know, they didn't meet cute at this party or whatever. Um, They did become friends at one of Lady Elizabeth Cavendish's parties, but they weren't complete strangers like this implies that they were. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So off guard, kind of, as she sees the work going up the stairs, she says, you've made the ugliness beautiful. And then, of course, his response is, I despise posturing and pretentiousness and humbug. You, my friend, are officially singing her song right now. (laughs) No kidding. That's exactly what she was trying to get away from with Cecil's portrait. And these really caught her eye as being so different. He starts to tell her his process, you know, how he takes his small camera and he kind of prowls around and just, you know, makes himself invisible, kind of like you said he was doing at the very beginning at that wedding. Yeah. And he just gets closer and closer, he says. And in the end, it's like, and he searches for the word and Margaret says, intrusion. He just kind of says, intimacy. That's the word. Wow. You know, she thinks to be close like that, scrutinized like she's been her whole life is a horrible thing. And he's saying, no, it's intimacy. He is unusual and he is intriguing. Matthew Good, man, he gets right in there. We loved him from Downton Abbey, of course, but he didn't have nearly the scope of kind of creepy material to work with. And I actually find him quite alarming. I must be honest, I don't find this a very comfortable conversation at all. (laughs) No, I don't either. He seems like he knows too much, like he's seeing right into her almost. And he's saying exactly the things that she wants to hear, but he's saying it with kind of a swagger that would, if it was me, I, my, you know, my guard would totally be up. Predatory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like he senses a little innocent gazelle in, in the Bohemian forest. (laughs) You know, I don't like it. She asks if he can take her photograph and he agrees. But he says, when you come to my slum studio, you're going to leave your titles and your princess outside. And then he goes on to say that she has to do everything he says. That is creepy. (laughs) And then like while looking, quote, looking out at the party, he says, don't look like that. You're dying to be a supplicant. Admit it. Now, Girls and boys, this is verging on red flag territory in real life. Like, actually, we've already passed that. The red flags have been up for since the bottom of the stairs, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. You mean the, the photograph of the stripper with the pasties on? No, that's the that top didn't... of the stairs. I'm saying the bottom of the yeah, stairs. Oh, at the bottom of the stairs. The top, that was just like a cherry on the top of the cake. Don't let huh? dudes separate you from the group. <laughs> nope. 
My mom was a costume designer, but in the 70s, to kind of help make ends meet, she took on commissions to make um, stripper costumes. And we had rows and rows of pasties in our house. (laughs) (laughs) Like uh, all drying, the glue was all drying on a table. And then she'd also, you know, make matching G-strings to go with them. So we were very young children and we had we knew what pasties and G-strings were. <laughs> so that picture at the top of the stairs would fit right into your childhood home. That's not everybody that can say that. Okay. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah. The next morning, Margaret is very excited to tell Elizabeth about her evening and the gay man that she met. She names him, finally, we know his name, Tony, don't call him Anthony, Armstrong Jones. And I thought it was very funny that Margaret is excited about like, no one curtsied or got up or gave one crap about me. And Queen Elizabeth is thinking horrid, but Margaret loved it. And also that Elizabeth flinches at the word queer. Just like, oh, distasteful. She doesn't even like the word Tony, frankly. I don't know. (laughs) Surely Anthony. No, no. Also, they have this conversation, this whole conversation in front of three footmen, which might as well be pieces of furniture. I guess they're used to it. But whatever this conversation is, it seems that Queen Elizabeth, just listening, like one does in a good relationship, she said it herself earlier, is just happy to see a smile again on Margaret's face for whatever wacko reason. Okay, (laughs) if if that's what you like, I guess. This made me want to have a sister and wanted to have a sister who lives right down the street because their breakfast, they're very comfortable with each other. They, you know, in real life, they were actually very good friends in addition to being siblings. They're just sitting around the breakfast table, like reading magazines. Queen Elizabeth is reading Tatler, which was just like its title says, it's, you know, an upscale gossip magazine. You know, there's articles about travel and the best of this and the best of that. But essentially, it was like a really slick people magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what she's reading at the table. They're both just flipping through magazines. Margaret's smoking, of course. She does not die in real life from lung cancer. I, I'm going to just set that out there because she smokes an awful lot. She does have a little scare, but she does not die from lung cancer. The favorite line I have of Margaret's is about this mysterious photographer that she likes. Queen Elizabeth's like, I can tell he has a contempt for everything we represent. I actually think you'd like him. Okay. <laughs> what about that sentence makes you think your sister, who is all prim and proper, would like him? <laughs> no. I personally, because I don't hear the word queer used except in an extraordinarily derogatory manner. I was like, she uses this word a lot. Why? Um, I did look up the background of the word, and I will link you to an article on it. I was surprised it had been around since the 1800s when the ninth Marcus of Queensbury learned that his son was having an affair with Oscar Wilde, and he brought suit upon Wilde and brought him to court, and that's when he started using this particular word. And, you know, we still use it. It's the Q and LGBTQ. But Margaret's just tossing it about like it's not a bad word. Well, and I think, I think, like many other descriptive words for minority groups, you know, in a society, I think those words get used. They get emotion attached to them. They get reclaimed. They get dismissed. They get... uh, absolutely put into the forbidden category. Lots of things happen to different Mm -hmm. words. I mean, we can't even go into suffragist suffragette. I mean, that has a big history too. And that doesn't have nearly the emotional baggage that these other words do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that they kept using that word. 
word, but that would have been the word, I guess, that she would have used. Right. So brava to the writers. The next morning, her Rolls Royce is going to drive right up to his studio. It's not a very nice neighborhood. Just like he said, he called it a slum. And again, she gets out of the car and alone, she goes into his studio. Ladies, I do not care how much contempt he has for you or your way of life. You have your driver wait inside at his dang door with his freaking beefy arm ready to punch in the face. (laughs) It is not safe. I was like, oh, my God. Okay, so she's lived her whole. I'm trying to justify her actions. She's lived her whole life being told where to go and what to do. And now she's making her own decisions. And just like, you know, in college, did you not end up in the wrong place at the wrong time when you're first making your own decisions? No, you probably didn't. I did. I probably did enough times for you. <laughs> so, well, I'll and, cover you on this one. <laughs> well, there's this other thing, too, whereas if you've lived in a protective bubble your whole life, maybe you don't see that others were out for your security the whole time and protecting you from stuff. Mm-hmm. So you think mm-hmm. I just walk around in the world as a safe place. Uh, since you did not like the plaid coat at all in the last episode, what did you think about this one? Nope. Nope. No like. You don't like anything that she's wearing. I am shocked. Not more than me. (laughs) I guess not. So she's going to get her portrait taken by Tony and he sets her up for a portrait. It looks very much at the beginning like a normal portrait session. Lights and camera and angles. And he's kind of looking at her and, you know, checking to make sure that the shadows, everything. He's doing the normal portrait setup, but then it turns a little different. He just pees out upstairs and makes mysterious noises, just banging and creaking and and making her wait. And what the frick? I'd be gone. Like, I think he is trying to get me to be curious and go upstairs. And that's when I get the chop. It also reminded me of that, um, that little skit. Gosh, I'll have to link you to it. It's like, the upstairs neighbors who drag chains across the floor and as their art project and kind of try to torture the woman downstairs. It's kind of a commentary on downstairs neighbors always say that the upstairs neighbors have horses and whatnot (laughs) clumping around. So we'll link you to that video. But he is trying to get her to comment, to leave or to come upstairs. Mm -hmm. And I love how (laughs) she plays him back though. Well, I'm just going to sit here where you left me. I can just smoke a cigarette. I don't need you. I don't need your games. So he's met his match in that regard. For sure. So she waits him out and they just play their mind games. And finally, he comes downstairs and suddenly it's photo taking time. And his photo strategy is a lot different than Cecil's. Oh, alternatively, it's exactly the same as Cecil's because Cecil wants to set a mood. Well, so does Tony. Tony starts in on her almost immediately, trying to peel off the veneer, which is his goal. You know, Cecil wants her to put the veneer back on. And Tony is like, you don't have the faintest idea who you are. Nobody knows who you are. And she shows him, ultimately, one of Cecil's portraits folded all up. Cecil is a disgrace, says Tony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but she defends him. She's like, he's been good to the family. And Tony's like, well, why would you care? Have they been good to you? And then he brings up Townsend and he must start getting the look he was looking for because he starts clicking. Here's the thing. He sets up a camera on a tripod. He points it at her. He does his thing upstairs. He comes back downstairs. He moves the camera again. Then he grabs that little 35 millimeter and he starts shooting with that. He moves the tripod forward a little bit. 
and then keep shooting with the little 35 millimeter. Well, he uses it as a stand for his elbow, his arm. He rests his hand uh, on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He definitely uses it. But I think it's part of his mystique. Like, I know you think this is going to happen like every other portrait. And here's the camera. It's not the camera. It's just part of it. So then he gets in her space. He gets in her space and he comes right up to her and he pushes the shoulders of her dress down and she thinks it's on. She does. She thinks, oh, no, this is the supplicant part. It's all <laughs> intense until he gets just one snap. The snap. He just knows. We're done. Yeah, That was it. It's just super fast. He got it. He knew he got it. He tells her to get dressed and come upstairs for a drink and see where he lives. So she comes up for a drink, whiskey or chinzano, he says, vermouth. Ladies in my British novels are always drinking whole glasses of vermouth. I think you do too, don't you? Um, it is my traditional cooking a holiday dinner cocktail because my mom did it. It was a sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist of lemon. And I drink because my mom did. And she let us have little sips. So I do it. Okay, so I like that emotional thing. But to me, vermouth is that thing that you hold up and show the gin bottle before you pour it in a martini glass. Like, <laughs> I just went and smelled mine while I was writing my notes. I, I was like, well, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. And I, we keep it on the bar for people to make their martinis with or whatever. And I went and opened it and it smells to me like dirty old wine glass. Ouch. <laughs> I like it. Now you started talking about that. Now I'm like, oh, did I have one at Christmas? I don't think I did. I was putting liquor in my coffee. I'm pretty sure I have dry vermouth though, because I don't, I wouldn't have, I don't think I have sweet vermouth or anything. I'll have to go look. I'm sure the sweet is totally different. <laughs> <laughs> you'll take a sip and you'll be like, oh, that's lovely. I actually think off topic that Cinzano is made by Campari. And if you have never tasted Campari, you know what? Spare yourself. Because yeah. if you went into a hamster cage and got one of those cedar things, out and wet it and then chewed on it in your mouth. That's what Campari tastes like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I agree. It just like shrivels your mouth up like salt on a uh, slug. <laughs> That's how, and it yeah, kind of makes no. you like regret your existence and stuff. <laughs> I had a friend who drank it all the time. Was it what was it? Campari and soda? Oh, it's a very, very hip drink. It's like Ugh. this whole um, frenet thing that people are drinking around here and now it's like it, i don't know it's like the chef's sign if you drink a shot of frenette after a shift or oh. whatever it's like the code for you get a discount kind of yeah and i'm gonna have to go down to your house and get some shots <laughs> it's actually um it tastes just like lydia pinkham oh yuck <laughs> i'm not i'm just telling you it's like a test of your machismo to drink oh. any of these things that's like dandelions with alcohol in them there forget it that's about what it tastes like no, no thank you so Margaret is kind of going through his desk, just looking at the pictures. Who's this? It's my friend. What kind of friend? A friend. Like, he's not going to be drawn. Who's this? Oh, that's Macmillan's daughter. He kind of reveals that everybody seems to think slash know that Macmillan's daughter is not his biological daughter at all. Yeah, I think it's pretty much accepted. I mean, in real life, that she wasn't. Her name was Sarah. Um she had a really sad life. She had a botched abortion in the early 50s that made her unable to have children. Um, when she did get married, she adopted her sons, but she had a drinking problem for her whole life. And she died at 40. I mean, what a sad story. And this picture he's looking at, she does look sad. And that's the comment that Margaret makes about it. And so there's a little bit of prowling in this extremely weird, unconventional environment. And she sits at this piece of furniture and just by the, the way 
He laughs that she touched it. And like the whole vibe of the conversation, I think we're supposed to think it has something to do with sex. That's what I thought, too. He's like, just something I'm working on. Don't touch it. (laughs) But do you know what it might be? I have no idea. Do you? Yeah, I do. Okay, here's some background knowledge for you. Here's what it might be. Although he did put a little smirky, supplicant face on it. It might be a prototype of an improved wheelchair. Tony had polio when he was younger, not as a small child, but when he was 16 years old. And I just want to say that notably, neither one of his parents came to see him in the hospital. So if he's crusty with some kind of hard candy shell, you know, huh? But he, in real life, really fought all his life for improvements in public access and um, programs for disabled people. One day he realized that people in wheelchairs were loaded in the baggage cars on trains and he fought against that and for improved access and accommodations. And he did, in fact, invent an improvement to a wheelchair. And I think that is what she's sitting in. Oh, I thought it was something that belonged in, you know, Catherine, the great secret room. (laughs) Well, and it could be. I mean, he's not a one trick pony. Maybe he has other inventions, but I'm just saying it could be a little homage to his good half. Yeah. (laughs) I love the mirror. He walks her over to a mirror. He says, this is something you might like. And it has all these names signed on it. People sign their names. He keeps a diamond so that people can write their names or their nicknames on it. She's like looking at the names and she's asking who people are. And she's like, oh, there's already a princess. And it's actor Tony Richardson (laughs) who can use that name. Take that as you will. (laughs) Oh, what do you know? Well, um, she, shyly, asks if she could sign, but she doesn't have a nickname. She doesn't feel like she'd ever had a nickname. And he gives her one right off the top of his head. Beryl. And she's like, what? And then he gives it a beat. And then he says, rhymes with peril. <laughs> I was looking for deeper meanings, like the hardness of the material or the color of the stone. But in fact, I think that's all it is. It just rhymes with peril. She loves it. She loves it. And she writes it immediately. And then I love how he slyly just goes, put it back about the diamond. Margaret probably has a sock drawer full of diamonds. She doesn't need his manky old ratty diamond that everybody's touched. Yeah, she might have diamonds hanging around her house everywhere, right? But not at his. He's got one and he needs it. (laughs) Yeah, if it's that big, it's probably not a super high quality. It's just, you know, big enough to hold in your hand and scratch some glass, but not a really great diamond. (laughs) Well, it's an industrial diamond for an industrial loft. There you go. Perfectly fitting. And this loft, his space is really cool. And they go down to the photo lab. They're going to develop the film and um, he's going to take her with him and show her how it's done. I know exactly what it smells like in there. I wish we could have smell vision because I was on yearbook staff and my high school had this entire photography studio in the basement. I don't know if they teach all that development stuff anymore in this era of digital photography. It's a big loss. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just loved it. We had the the red lights and the lines for drawing, the whole thing, even the hallways um, corkscrewed around so that no stray beam of light would get in there on both ends. There were two exits and both hallways were shaped like, um, well, like an S with an extra loop at the end. Yeah, we had like a revolving door into ours. So, you know, it was blocked off. You go into the open part and go in. And you'd hold it that way so that on the outside, nobody else could get in. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of 
Yeah. Yeah. I loved it too. When I was in college, I took as many photography classes as I could. I actually ran a party pick company oh. when I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. So I know exactly how this smells too. And the feeling and I just I oh god I loved being in the dark room I really kind of miss it 35 millimeters coming back like isn't that a hipster thing to do I saw do a photo film? mat the other day I don't think it was called photo mat it was something else but you know those little booths that for the youngins if you ever see the movie back to the future it's that little tiny building that the DeLorean crashes into um <laughs> there used to be these little tiny I mean one guy could hardly move around. I have no idea if they just peed in a Gatorade bottle or what. And they were in all of these parking lots and you would drive through and drop your film off and it would be magically, usually in an hour, developed and turned into pictures with negatives in a little side envelope and they'd hand them back to you. And they used to be everywhere. And I saw one the other day and I thought about taking, ironically, a picture of it with my phone. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Sad. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay. He exposes the paper and they put it into the developer and all of this whole time he really gets far too close. And I guess it's exciting. <laughs> I don't know. And then water and then the fixer. She knows what's going on. She says that she's decided that he isn't queer. That's the word she uses. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate to even say it. <laughs> and he isn't because he's too practiced. He's obviously done this move before, she says. And he is very practiced and he has her, you know, develop her own photograph. And okay, if you take out the ickiness that, you know, he's kind of predatory, it's kind of hot. I thought <laughs> if they really did have a connection, you know, like some chemistry, I thought it was the best arts and crafts foreplay since uh, Ghost. I was literally going to say <laughs> I was equally grossed out by the whole making a clay pot thing. So no, I'm not buying what you're selling, but many might be. So I bought it. <laughs> so, but then again, I watch Hallmark movies, so my my bar is really low. <laughs> so in the back of my mind, I was like, use your elbow. It's the strongest part of your body. Um, but whatever, whatever anybody's into, that's fine. I just don't, I don't find the tension exciting. I find it, um, like when they have a very, um, alarming angle in a horror movie, I was like, oh, this looks like it's going to go bad. <laughs> or when Elizabeth smiles while she's writing a letter. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they are done with the picture. It's a famous picture. In fact, he's done it. It's the real Margaret. It's touched her and scared her. Um, we don't see it. Not yet. We don't see this picture at all, but she's out. She has shut down. The walls have come down. End of drama. End of story. End of this predatory nonsense. I'm sure it's worked before, but this is where it ends with me. She leaves him an address for someone to send it to and decides to go. She says she's going to leave, but he asks if she came with a driver. And he, of course, yes, of course, he's waiting outside. And he says, good, then he can follow us. And he raises the gate and there's that motorcycle, that Triumph motorcycle that he drove in on at the very beginning. This poor driver is never going to be able to follow them. Even if Tony hadn't purposely tried to lose him, I like how they rev, 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 rev. And the guy in the gray Poupon car next door is extremely disapproving. And Margaret loves that. Like, oh, if you only knew who you were frowning at, my friends. <laughs> it is just what Margaret needed, I think. Um, a little anonymity, a little excitement. Um, she just feels free. Nobody in the world except Tony knows where she is right then. And that has hardly ever happened to her before in her whole life. <laughs> um, and then over at Buckingham Palace in um, staid middle age land, 
we have the Sultan of Parak and his translator and his wife. And it has evidently been a very, very long formal evening because everyone's in full impress me regalia. Elizabeth says, I thought that would never end. (laughs) I identified her tiara. It was a Cambridge lover's knot, also known as Queen Mary's lover's knot. The one that both Princess Diana and Duchess Catherine are very fond of borrowing. Yep. There's that picture of um, Catherine in the back of a car, kind of a candid, but I've seen it everywhere. And she's got that one on. Yes, it's lovely. Think about this. You're a person who grew up in a house with a family eating cereal or whatever, and you go to college and you marry a prince and there is a day, and I don't want this day to come soon, but Queen Elizabeth um, will go, Prince Charles will go, and there is a day when that entire collection of tiaras belongs to her. And that is the most surreal thing. (laughs) (laughs) Like somebody just goes down and opens the door. And I think Queen Elizabeth herself felt it. Do you remember in season one when she said, can I borrow this crown for a while in practice? And the man says, if it's not yours, I don't know whose it is. Borrow. (laughs) Yes, you can keep your crown in your room if you want to. That, yeah, that does have to be surreal, even for someone who was in the royal family like Elizabeth was. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, Margaret's, I guess she has to ID herself at the gate, but this whole thing has been just a joyous anonymity for her. And I do like how she gives back the helmet and he says, keep it like for next time. Not explicitly stated, but for next time definitely implied. So Elizabeth has been having a very boring time. They actually show them going to bed. They go up the one flight of stairs. They separate to go to the second floor. It's all very formal. And quiet. Even though they're together, they're kind of alone. It's just boring. And they go into their own separate rooms and do their own separate pre-bed rituals, just without any words, really. And in Margaret's room, she has a new music selection to match her current mood. It's the Flamingos. I only have eyes for you. Part of it is I can't see anyone but you. And of course, she smokes, 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 smokes. She smokes a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So Philip and Elizabeth are routinely getting ready for bed, even Philip's jammies, Jimmy jams, I heard them called (laughs) by a British person, that makes me laugh, are buttoned by his valet. Yes, they go to their separate ends of the suite, into their separate beds. They have their separate lights and they turn them off at different times. Good night, he calls from the bowling alley down the way. (laughs) Good night, she says from her end. And wow, what a contrast because Margaret is dancing again. Man, she loves to dance, but this time it's joyous. Um, She's upstairs reveling in the new lyrics for her new mood and we see down in tony's studio that he has printed all of his takes Mm -hmm. and he's looking at them all because he's taken down all the other pictures if you remember and there's nothing there and suddenly there's all these and we can't really see but they seem like all her head she cannot get a smile off her face in this scene it is wonderful she's just so carefree and dancing around her room uh she sits down at her vanity instead of the last time we saw her sitting there you know with her mascara down her face she's trying to recreate that pose Mm. she's trying to see how she looked and it's just she's just giddy i guess is the best way to describe it it's wonderful So if nothing else ever happened with this guy, this one time, I mean, golly, out of the depths of despond, if he had done nothing else in his whole life, 
and they never saw each other again, there would have been this one wonderful thing that he did. So I guess I forgive him for being a creep, this character. I'm not saying anything against the real Tony Armstrong Jones, who I don't know. But this character, you know, I really feel like he redeemed himself, at least in her heart. Like how he made her feel makes me like him better. I loved her like this. It's like, oh, yes, this is how life can feel. You know, this is what joy is. It's been a very long time Mm -hmm. since she felt any joy. I think she might have had some joy during the Peter Townsend years. Oh, no, yeah. But it was always kind of tinged, I guess, toward the end with that coloring of heartbreak. And secrecy, too. I mean, yeah, it's kind of exciting to be sneaking around, but, you know, not to be able to be as open with your relationship as you want to be has to take some joy away from it, I would think. Right, that's true. The next morning, there's a montage of a lot of people getting their newspaper and all seeing one specific item in the newspaper with very different reactions. I am in love with my whole heart at the Duke of Windsor, the former king, and Wallace Simpson's faces. I (laughs) am radiating the happiness about this. I think they're kind of proud, frankly. Uh, Well, well, you know, ho, ho, what has happened? Lassels is like, I give the F up. Like, he's done. He's out. Michael Aideen, well, it just breaks his mind. And then the queen mom looks around as if somebody's looking over her shoulder like, oh, I hope no one saw what I just saw in this paper. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking on all of those. Like, Like, there's other copies of this paper, queen mom. They exist. Everybody's got one. That's right. Even if somebody looks over your shoulder, it doesn't matter. They got their own copy out in the hallway. Macmillan saw the paper first, and his comment was, gracious and he's like totally shocked and I thought like you did like Lassels was he kind of flips his glasses and his look was like damn it I have to protect them from themselves again so between Adine and the queen mom there's a guy I don't know who that is I didn't either I'm like is that Dickie with glasses on no way no I did not know who that was maybe he represents like all of England looking at this picture. Okay, so I'm glad too, because I was like, I don't even, I couldn't even fathom who that was. Mm -mm. Evidently, the paper has been poured over downstairs by the servants because it's late. Philip says, finally, when he brings it in and Philip sees it and Philip loves the heck out of it. The beam on his face, I think he has admiration for his sister-in-law, actually, and her spirit and the fact that she's trying to break out. You know, that's right up his alley. But he loves the thought of the shakeup that is happening. Look at his face. I loved it. I loved it. And yeah. Philip just says to Elizabeth, it appears she's, and then Elizabeth is like naked. Yes. And she's totally uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but Philip can't stop laughing. See, the great people, the rowdy people appreciate it. <laughs> and then we do get to finally see this portrait. It's a black and white, looking over her shoulder. It's exactly like you think it's going to be. She does look naked. She's got a very sexy look in her eyes. It's a very, very sexy portrait. Not at all princess-like. That's for sure. The director and the art director say it's based on this photo from the 50s, but if you compare them, it actually looks more like a picture. There's a tiny spoiler coming. I'm sorry. There's no way to avoid it. That Tony took later in the 60s when they were already married. It actually bears a stronger resemblance to that later picture to me. Mm -hmm. No, I thought the same thing. He did take a picture of her for her 29th birthday at Portrait, and she does kind of look naked in it, but it has a totally different feel than 
60s Margaret looking naked portrait. <laughs> we'll link you to them and you can decide for yourself. But I actually think the latter one is, it's not shocking to me. The sight of a shoulder doesn't offend me in any way. But if one were to be offended by the appearance of nudity, I would say the latter one is going to offend you more. That's all. <laughs> Weirdly, I thought she was sending the photo to Peter Townsend. I really did. But it looks like she had Tony send it to the newspaper instead. The revelation of this photo is the end, and the end credits begin to run. Well, what a journey Margaret's been on, from crumpled up satin dress to, frankly, no dress in a picture, as far as you're concerned. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. And I liked all the parties, and I liked um, the running metaphor, I guess, of marriage that ran through the whole thing, you know, stormy times, sunny times, blah, blah, blah. I like that. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But I liked it. <laughs> Like I said before, this was one of my favorite episodes. Um, Vanessa Kirby did such a good job with it. And she got such a great script, I think, to work with. And she got to just really act. I loved it. This episode was mostly about Margaret, really, her journey. And also showing, just by manner of contrast, that Elizabeth and Philip have come to some accommodation in their own marriage I guess. I had hoped for a little more in that. Maybe it'll come later, but it's not fireworks for sure. But it's comfortable now, like an old shoe. I guess it works, functions. A couple of glances during that night, night, valet buttons, the pajama scene make me wonder if they miss their sparks, though. They're not fighting anymore, but they're not really that full of joy anymore either. Mm -hmm. I think more on his part. You know, I think he likes to have fun a whole lot more than Elizabeth does. Right, right. But like as he's getting into bed, he's the one that talks. He finally talks, you know, and maybe he was like hinting, you know, you want to come hang out with me or something. But he didn't say that. It's just like, good night. I know. Oh. It's like you give up kind of. Well, mm. OK, so going forward, what has this episode left us with? Obviously, we are going to need to find out about Margaret and Tony Armstrong Jones. I mean, we know how it ends up from here in real life with history, but how do they get there? So that we're likely going to see soon. Also, Margaret has tasted freedom from the glass of bohemianness, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, so I hope that can continue without too much more friction from Queen Elizabeth or society in general. So we're going to see that little journey too of her alone. And there have been hints of Tony's dodgy past or maybe his dodgy present. So those are the things that I've been left with in addition to kind of hoping to see a little bit more of Philip and Elizabeth's relationship and the new or papered over way they are talking to each other. Well, you know, we know from history that they're married. This past year was 70 years. So they obviously figure out a way to work together. They still look like they they like each other. Yeah. So how do they get there. So you did not have a favorite outfit, huh? Well, no, I did have a favorite outfit. Finally, oh. at last. And I didn't talk about it a little earlier, knowing I was going to talk about it now. So at last, and I didn't, I wasn't full of love. But uh, at last, Margaret's dress during Tony's photo shoot. It was a dark copper, and it had some kind of self-colored stripes with a waist, finally, and a <laughs> randomly draped front. So I like the randomly draped front. It's not boob hammocks like Elizabeth keeps <laughs> insisting on wearing. Anyway, her dress actually looked really nice. And I had thought I was going to have more choice <laughs> um, with Margaret as the main character. But, you know, the depression wardrobe, there's wrinkles and disappointment. 
I liked the costumes. I loved the dresses. But my favorite, I said it before, was that breaking up with Billy dress that she was wearing. That silver gray draped strapless and with the Cartier halo tiara. Oh, my God. Wait, I have a picture of myself in... A strapless dress with a tiara on. I, I want to sure see this do. picture. Well, now, keep in mind, it was Halloween. I have seen this picture, and you have angel wings on or fairy wings or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and of course, my husband has a giant 70s uh, disco wig on. So, yeah, maybe <laughs> I'll send you that to put on the show notes. I'll have to. Yeah, that'll be good. Hmm. Yeah, that's your one <laughs> sighting of me in a strapless dress. I had a dress. I had um. It was my mom's dress in the late fifties. And when I went to college, it was the style was back in. So I, I brought it to college to wear to fraternity formals and, oh my gosh, I love this gown so much. I wore it. I mean, it, it, until it shredded, it was very heavy satin. It was strapless. It was emerald green, um, very fitted with a little bit bigger skirt, but not like poofy and a teeny tiny little bustle. But it, it kind of reminded me of like, I think Marilyn Monroe kind of. Yeah. Oh my God. And I had, of course, you know, it was the eighties shoes tied to match, <laughs> but oh gosh, I wore that dress so much. Do you so have a picture? I don't, but my roommate in college might actually have a picture. So I'm going to write down green dress. Anyway, so the worst outfit, you can always count on Elizabeth to bring up a wacko outfit. There is right at the end, in fact, um, I had a different candidate till right at the end. There is a weird, shapeless, gray, heathered thing. And I thought, is it a bathrobe? No, it has a brooch on it. But that's a bad sign. When you wonder if a dress is a bathrobe. Hmm. What scene was that? The very last where she said naked. Oh, okay. My least favorite was that princess fluff dress from Margaret's official birthday portrait. Oh, that <laughs> was horrendous. Although I could say Queen Mom's was even worse, but I loved it in its ugliness. So <laughs> that's how I feel about people's Christmas lights. Like I love when people have their Christmas lights and they're perfect. And I also find it very endearing when they are just craptacular. Like somebody has just come out and thrown them on a bush and plugged them in. Done. <laughs> I actually find it in my heart to love both ends of that spectrum. So I think you're right with Queen Mum's dress. It's so bad that it's like E.T. So ugly, it's cute. Like. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. As for links, if my phone can maintain, I have 3%. Oh, dear. I'll give you a link to the princess song. Also the lyrics too, because it's a little hard. Also, Betjeman's in Westminster Abbey poem, the 1969 portrait versus the earlier portrait of Margaret, and also off of Order of Splendor, rules for wearing tiaras. <laughs> when and who and during what occasion? I filled down a few holes and I'll link you up to NASA's history of Sputnik and the whole space race. We'll put those music videos on the show notes because it would just be fun to listen to them while you're reading them. Um, I have found a link that has many of Tony Armstrong Jones photos on it. I don't know if you want to look at them yet because that, you know, that happens later in his life. But I couldn't resist looking to see what his art really did look like, including that one of Art Ann and Charles by the Globe. And I didn't want to get too far into his life on this one because I felt like anything I said might be spoilery for the future. So I figure we can go into, I mean, I referred to the fact that he had had polio, but only because um, Margaret mentioned it in this episode. So I felt like it was free to disclose. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, I agree. I just, quite honestly, I was looking for the picture of the stripper with the pasties because I wanted to hear the story behind it. I thought maybe I could find the portrait and look at the story, but no, maybe I'll look even harder. <laughs> All right. Well, that should do it for our coverage of season two, episode four of The Crown. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Do you know anyone who watches The Crown? Spread the word about the recapery, won't you? And tell a few friends. Also, we've got a Pinterest board set up at The Recapery for Season 2. If you'd like even more rabbit holes to travel down, just head on over there. And most importantly, don't miss our original podcast, The History Chicks, where we tell you the stories of women throughout history as only we can. See you next time! Stand by my disappointment in the entire. <sighs> oh wait, whatever that was. Don't do that. That was. <laughs> that was me sighing oh, out well, loud. Don't do okay. that again. <laughs> it sounded like monsters were eating your microphone. <laughs>